Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Our guest today will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We are blessed to have with us today a modern Renaissance man who happens to be a radiologist, Dr. Brandon Brown. He'll reveal the secrets of what make radiologists tick, and it just might be radioactive. And before we kind of get started with our interview with Dr. Brown, we wanted to provide some background information, not background radiation, I hope. <laughs> and uh, the, the things we thought would be useful to talk about is kind of a brief history of radiology. It's pretty new in the history of medicine, with the first x-rays being discovered back in 1895 by Wilhelm Röntgen. You mean, he, really, Hippocrates didn't have x-rays? You know, it's crazy to think because now we use radiology so much. It's almost, you know, you'd be, uh, you'd really be in a state of malpractice for many things if you don't consult some type of radiology for internal things, at least. So Wilhelm Röntgen, go on, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it all started in 1895. And with his discovery of a new type of ray, the ability to see inside the body was really discovered that progressed with different type of modalities, especially moving the x-ray tube and the plate where we were capturing the image um, back and forth in the 1920s so that they could obtain different images of the skin, of the bones, of different organs based on how far apart these things were to focus in different areas. The x-ray technology led into the 1960s where CAT scans were developed. Uh, by Dr. Sir and Dr., I presume, Godfrey Hounsfeld. And that's where in radiology we get Hounsfeld units. Um, and CAT scans have nothing to do with feline animals. <laughs> and in fact, they've stopped calling them CAT scans, didn't they? They did. Now, now I think the in vogue term is just the CT scan, right? Yeah, the A was automated. Yep. And now Computer, I- computerized tomography. What is tomography? My name is Tom, but it has nothing to do with tomography. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's and there's definitely an alphabet soup here with all the, we haven't even gotten to the MRIs. No, but the tomography just refers to taking slices through a body and looking at slices from different angles. So you really have to be good at anatomy to be a good radiologist. Well, and and you're exactly right. You know, you're exactly right. But if, if you think about it, it'd be... Hard to imagine so many things that we diagnose now with imaging that previously you just relied on physical exam. I don't think I've percussed someone in quite a while because we can see inside now. Right. Which- oh, and one of the great joys back when I was doing neurology classes, you could figure out where the lesion in the brain was based on physical exam. Now it kind of takes the fun out of it because you can just get a CT or MRI and oh, there it is. It's it's mostly academic, isn't it? Yes. You know? Well, MRIs are a different type of imaging modality based on the resonance of water molecules molecules in the body and basically how those respond to magnetic fields and how they relax creates distinction. And the nice thing about MRI is it does not have radiation. Uh, We'd also be remiss if we don't mention ultrasounds, which were obviously developed earlier on in, I believe, the late 60s and early 70s, but weren't really in use until the 80s and 90s. And now we're, can you imagine even uh, having a baby and and being pregnant without having an ultrasound? You know, so radiology has really changed our lives and it continues to advance now with interventional radiology, where procedures are done using this imaging, where it's just a small entrance into an artery, a vein or something, you know. And so interventional radiology, I'd say would be the future of radiology. But one other radiologists who actually see patients. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have to give Dr. Brown a little bit of a hard time about that. You know, he really has too much personality to be not with patients. I wouldn't have pegged him for a radiologist. If you just meet him, I've got to meet Dr. Brown before and he's just such a nice guy. You'd really peg him for more of a pediatrician or something like that, but no radiology. He knows his stuff, you know? And one of the things that, would be worth mentioning as well, you know, with radiology, we always think of radiation, right? And so commonly people 
uh, doctors for sure, we worry about radiation. There's an estimated maybe 2% of cancers are caused by medical radiation. Um, and then patients a lot of times worry about radiation. Should I get that x-ray or should I get that CAT scan? And so kind of to lay out a little bit of what radiation looks like, uh, I've got a little bit of data for you. And so what we're talking about are millisieverts. And that's one of the ways we can measure radiation. So for example, uh, airplane flight from New York to Tokyo would lead to about nine millisieverts of radiation. Uh, natural radiation, we're all exposed to wandering around, minding our own business, are about two millisieverts per year. And so when you compare that to an x-ray, we're talking about 0.1 millisievert. So we're talking about 1 20th of just living for a year is how much one x-ray. And that's for a chest x-ray. How about dental? Dental x-ray is even another order of magnitude smaller, 0.01 millisieverts. Very good. So one two hundredth of your natural annual exposure. So you really probably don't have to worry about the x-rays from Dennis chest x-ray, uh, mammography, mammograms, that's a 0.4 millisievert. It gets a lot more serious when we start getting into CAT scans. And so a dose in a full body CAT scan is about 10 millisieverts or the amount of radiation you would get for being alive for about five years. Now, but what's the dose for an MRI, Andrew? MRI is zero. Exactly. Or an ultrasound. <laughs> ultrasound also zero. Exactly. So radiology now doesn't only mean radiation. That's correct. That's correct. And so, you know, I always like to give a little bit of context to the idea of radiation. So even, even if you do get a CAT scan uh, in the emergency department or you need one for some reason, probably not that big of a deal but it's the people who get multiple CAT scans back to back over the years. The idea of this cumulative dose, especially when it starts in childhood, we think that over the course of your life, these radiation exposures add up and those are the things that lead to the bad outcomes. And uh, on the sheet that you provided, it looks like people who were exposed to radiation at either Chernobyl or in Fukushima in Japan received about 200 times the annual natural amount in one hour. Yeah, and that, that is where you get to radiation sickness and poisoning, and in Chernobyl, obviously death, you know. Wow. So uh, we're going to learn about this from a true expert, but before we do that, we have our patented medical trivia question of the day, and the category is <gasps> shocking x-rays. So as Andrew mentioned, in 1895, German physicist Wilhelm Röntgen discovered x-rays. And you know why he called them X, Andrew? I don't, actually. Well, if any of you have taken algebra, what is the unknown? It's always uh... called X. So they were just unknown rays, and, and the name stuck. But... Who did he take the first x-ray on? Well, he was a physicist, so he didn't have medical students available. So he took the <laughs> next best thing, or ex actually the most available person, who happened to be his wife. Yes, he did the x-ray on her hand with her wedding ring on it. And when she saw the x-ray and her bones, she exclaimed, oh, I have seen my death. Yes, yes, he did. Or she did. So by 1900, only five years later, Thomas Edison's assistant, a glassblower named Clarence Daly, was experimenting for Edison with x-rays and improving the resolution. However, Clarence ended up dying only four years later from high doses of x-rays, which people thought initially were harmless. They didn't know. They couldn't feel them. And what happened to him was he progressively lost his hair on his hands, then he got open sores on his hands, and gradually all his fingers, then both hands, then both forearms to the elbows, both arms to the shoulders had to be amputated until he had metastases of some kind of cancer into his chest. What disease did x-rays cause on Clarence Daly that led to his death? You'll have to hang around for the end of the show to find out, but we'll be back with Brandon Brown, our radiology guest here on Dr. Doctor after the break. And we're back with our special guest today, radiologist, Dr. Brandon Brown. Brandon graduated with his master's and MD from the 
IU School of Medicine, but he got a philosophy undergrad degree at the University of Dallas in the great state of Texas. He's an associate professor with tenure of, get this, radiology, pediatrics, OBGYN, philosophy, and medical humanities. Remember I said he was a Renaissance man, and he even does paintings on his back. Well, maybe not. Maybe he does. Who knows? He's a pediatric radiologist at the J.W. Riley Hospital for Children in Indianapolis. He's a founding member of the Fetal Center at Riley Children's Health, and he directs fetal and perinatal imaging. I didn't even know that was a thing when I went to medical school. He does teaching and research. It probably wasn't, Tom. It probably wasn't. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> me and old uh, Hippocrates, who we now call Hippocrates, he does teaching and research in medical professionalism and ethics. He's a section um, bioethics member for the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's great to have someone like him there. He chairs the ethics and professionalism uh, committee for the radiologic society of north america and he's the former chair of professionalism for pediatric radiology and he's the medical director for what don't you do physician vitality and values at riley and he's a father of seven children aged two and a half to 15 years and he was previously interviewed on episode number 45 of dr doctor on fetal medicine you can find that still to this day on multiple podcast websites Brandon Brown, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real treat to be here uh, with both of you, and uh, I'm really excited to get a chance to talk with you again. Hey, so out of all the things you could have done after four grueling years of medical school, you chose to be a radiologist. Now, when I did my radiology rotation in medical school, I could not stay awake because they put us <laughs> in dark, quiet rooms all the time. I didn't have a baby to keep me awake or anything like that. So what was it with you that you were able to stay awake, alert, and interested and drawn into this fascinating field of radiology? No, that's that's a very good point. I think that it's not what people envision. You know, a classic doctor's doctor is at the bedside holding the patient's hands, prescription pad ready, and radiology is a little different than that. Uh, but I always have thought that we have an extra edge that most physicians don't have. And that is we can see what nobody else can see. Mm. And there's this element of imaging that can reveal the hidden, you know, medicine is all about trying to understand the mystery of what's within the person. And uh, so often we're limited to what they present to us, to their externalities, to their complaints, to their distress. And uh, radiology gives us a look inside. And I love the fact that there's this revelation element in radiology. And did you know that in college or did you glean this in medical school? When did it, what was the aha moment? You know, I think it was in medical school. I really loved my anatomy classes. I always, you know, as a kid, I loved to, to, to stare at roadmaps, road atlases on, family, <laughs> you know, I'd be in the back of the station wagon facing the wrong way, you know, the back row. And uh, <laughs> I would just pour over the atlas. And then I got to medical school and I studied anatomy and it felt like I was looking at a roadmap all over again with ah. veins and radiology really capitalizes on knowledge of anatomy. And you have to be intimately familiar with every little moving part in the body so that you can see what's normal, what's not normal. You can pick out what should be ignored and what should be observed. And, and so I think that in medical school, I've, I've really wanted to continue studying inside the body. And, um, you know, just like many of us, I had a really terrific mentor at medical school, who was very influential as well. It's such a powerful thing to have a strong and engaged and caring person who's ahead of you on the journey, who's willing to reach behind and, you know, help you along the way. Oh, amen to that. How, tell us about some of that training after medical school. How, how many years did it take to, you know, to be a radiologist? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a journey. Um, and, and I don't, um, I don't want to scare anybody off, but it's a few years. So I did, uh, you know, of course, four years of college, just like we all did. Then I did four years of medical school plus an extra year to get my master's in philosophy. And then after medical school, I did an internship. And then I did four years of residency after that. And then I did two fellowships after that, <laughs> interventional radiology and one in pediatric radiology. Some people really like school, right? <laughs> right. At some point, you just got to quit. But there's a part of me that still thinks, 
I wonder what I could study next. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so and, and, during that time, how many images have you looked at of radiology? Are oh we talking like probably probably a million, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so many. They say, you know, there's there's um, thousands, as a trainee, they say that in order to become good at the most basic, most fundamental image, which I think we can all agree is the chest x-ray, they say you have to look at between four and 5,000 of those to, you know, get some minimal competence. So as a trainee, you're supposed to look at thousands of those. But then in the, you know, years since then, um, each of our cross-sectional studies itself has thousands of images. So my specialty is not just pediatric radiology, but the very earliest moments of life, perinatal, which means right before birth and right after birth, very, you know, sick, very high-risk pregnancies. Each of those studies, when we do an MRI on a pregnant woman, has about four to 5,000 images per <laughs> patient. Wow. <laughs> you know, so if I, you know, spent time today with two or three pregnant patients, that's 15,000 <laughs> images right there. <laughs> Holy cow. And you mentioned something earlier about mentoring, and I wanted to connect the dots here. I think you've been helping to mentor someone else that we've been following through medical school on Dr. Doctor. Oh, is that right? Who's that? Brendan Radican. Oh, absolutely. Brendan's a great guy, and I feel lucky to know him. Uh, he comes over and we have a reading discussion group every month at my home for medical students from Indiana's two uh, schools of medicine, Marion University's uh, Medical College and also Indiana University School of Medicine. We have a group that meets every month. We discuss books. Sometimes we read poetry. This month we're going to watch a movie and uh, we have great conversations and um, Brendan's a big part of that. And he's also become interested in radiology. Yeah, I, I feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a good guilty, Brandon. That's right. <laughs> so if you had it to do over again, would you do radiology again? A hundred percent. I think I have the best job in the world. No offense to you guys. I know you each have your own niche and everybody loves what <laughs> they do. But I really like the fact that to be a great radiologist, especially in the world where I live, which is a kind of an academic medical center, children's hospital, there's a part of my job which is looking at pictures and figuring out what's wrong. I call that the diagnostic part of my work. There's a part of my job that goes in and fixes things. Sometimes maybe I'll put a needle into an abscess and drain the abscess or something like that. But then there's a part of my job where I sit down with whoever comes to see me, sometimes it's the surgeon, sometimes it's the neurologist, sometimes it's the pediatricians, the primary care doctors, and we just talk about what's going on with the patient. And they share what they've seen at the bedside and with their physical exam. And I share what I'm seeing in the images. And maybe one of the specialists is there and shares what they're seeing with their, you know, a custom lab test that they've ordered and we all have kind of a conversation and it feels a little bit like I'm an information manager trying to draw all these wow. threads together because medicine today is so super subspecialized and everybody is doing their little thing. You focus on the bladder and he focuses on the liver and I focus on the lungs, but not that often do we come together and have a, a group collegial conversation. And one of my goals at work every day is to foster as many of those as I can. Oh, that's beautiful. So you have an unusual life as a radiologist, but tell our listener, what, what is your typical day or week like? Well, I'll say that um, I'm very blessed, and I consider this a blessing, to have a pretty diverse schedule. I get to jump around a lot because about half my time is spent with patients, and then half my time is spent teaching and doing research at an academic center. There's a lot of that. But when I'm in the hospital, I come in. We, you, radiology usually starts pretty early. You know, there's a lot of patients who have their morning imaging. You know, maybe there's sick patients in the ICU. So we go through and we review all the cases from overnight and from the sickest patients. And we usually have a team of other types of doctors, critical care doctors and others who come and talk with us. So we start off the day with a conversation about what's been going on since everybody went home the night before, what happened overnight. And then over the course of the day, um, I spend time, you know, sitting by myself at a computer 
looking at images, but also going into rooms without patients who've come for a visit and maybe doing some ultrasound scanning, looking at different organs in their body. Uh, and then at times I'll sit down with a pregnant patient and, and the father of that baby and discuss what I'm seeing on the prenatal imaging and talk about what that means and what decisions there are to be made. And then sometimes we even try to intervene. So a lot of our procedures in radiology are guided by imaging. So we will use ultrasound or we'll use a type of video x-ray called fluoroscopy and we'll be able to actually watch through imaging where our needle is going and we can get inside the veins and go anywhere in the body the veins go so uh, sometimes we do procedures guided by the images it's not quite the same as a camera sometimes people say oh you must do one of those laparoscopic procedures but that's where you stick a camera in the body and look directly right. at what you're doing right. I don't like to even make an incision that big. My goal is to make a single needle stick and then I can get inside the vein and go anywhere. <laughs> now, Brandon, one of the things we touched on in the opening was how radiology is going to more and more interventional capabilities. Have you seen that in your career already where you're doing more hands-on procedures? Yes, I would say so. I think that, uh, Everybody loves the idea of having a minimally invasive procedure. Nobody wants a big scar. Nobody wants a long recovery time. So anytime we can get the job done without a scalpel versus having to do a big operation, you know, the patient is happy and I think there's less risk of infection. So more and more, we're trying to figure out ways to do these minimally invasive procedures. And now, to be honest with you, we're starting to do it even on babies before they're born. So one of the most exciting things I do is work in the world of fetal medicine. And there are cases, not common, but you know, I see them uh, regularly where we can go in and we can do a procedure on a baby before it's ready to deliver, put it back inside the womb, sew everything up, and then, you know, say a prayer <laughs> that, that it can just hold on until it's time to deliver. And so uh, we're doing more and more what I would call fetal interventions. So, Brandon, are you unusually gregarious for a radiologist? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I will say that there are some people who go into radiology for the peace and quiet. And I seem drawn to energy and conversation and sort of noise. You know, the seven kids have instilled that in me. I'm only you know, comfortable when there's some chaos. If things get really quiet, I immediately think, what's wrong? Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, uh, I do like to talk with people. And I feel like more and more today, we're drawn to be individuals. And we're drawn to be isolated. We have electronic devices. We have our smart devices and our computers and our laptops and our tablets and our electronic medical record. And everything is drawing us more and more into technology. But unfortunately, that means farther and farther apart from each other. So one of the things you mentioned, um, focusing on vitality and values for physicians, I see a lot of physicians who are a little discouraged, you know, maybe even letting the stress of their work get to them because I think an important part of our job is our ability to have a community with one another where we care about each other and we lift each other up and we can actually help each other. You know, nobody is an island by themselves. We have to practice medicine as a community and as a team. And if we forget that, if we start to strike out and think, I'm going to do this solo, I think it leads to some long-term consequences that aren't good. So I'm really interested in ways that we can continue to be part of a culture, a medical culture and a culture of life and a culture of people who care about restoring health to our communities. See, I, I love hearing that. And I think our listeners will find that interesting because when I kind of envision radiology, you might envision someone in pajama pants at home, um, <laughs> you know, because I, I feel like I've talked to those guys where they're like, oh, yeah, I read from home now, got the fancy monitors. Do many radiologists live that way? Or are you kind of atypical in that opportunity that you have there? Or yeah. is, is it changing now? You know, I think it has a lot to do with 
each individual person's goals. You're absolutely right. If you want to, you can get yourself a computer and a high-speed internet connection, and you could be on a cruise ship out in the Pacific looking at x-rays for patients. And on one level, you'd be able to do your job very well. You can see the x-ray, you can transmit your report. Uh, but on another level, I think you would be missing something. And I think that one of the things we really need to be mindful of is that efficiency is not the highest virtue in medicine. There's a lot of temptations to overvalue efficiency. It, you know, it pays the bills. The more patients, you know, the, the more throughput you have, move them in, move them out, you know, the more bills that get paid and the more revenues for the hospitals. And, uh, you know, there's always a long line of people waiting to be seen. So maybe you're helping some patient who hasn't even come into your practice yet. But at the same time, efficiency can have a dark side in the sense that we start to value processes and tech techniques over human beings, over persons. And so I think that, you know, if I imagine myself bringing my you know, grandmother into the hospital uh, and somebody said, don't worry, you know, Mr. Brown, we're going we're gonna to process your grandmother as efficiently as possible. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know? Please don't. <laughs> That's yes. a little terrifying, right? So I think we also need to stay in touch with the human side of medicine, which admittedly does slow things down. If I go and talk to people, if I have a conversation with my colleagues about a, a particularly challenging case, that's going to slow me down, but I'm okay with that. Uh, you know, we all have to balance the risks and benefits of everything we do, but I think there are times when we need to slow down in medicine. Is this part of what you do with the physician values and vitality work you do? Do you have to address the fact that efficiency has become almost a, a small G God to some people? Yeah, yeah, I do. And it's a little bit of a tension point because the hospital wants you know, their physicians to be healthy, but they also kind of like efficiency. So there's a little bit of a tension. It's a, it's a tightrope walk to make sure that you don't, you know, get to the point where you can't get your work done. That's not good. But we also want to get to the point where we mistake our work as process oriented or as just getting through the list, you know. So a lot of physicians who I've talked to who feel the effects of work-related stress, sometimes people like to use the term burnout. I'm not sure it's the perfect term, but we hear it. I think that a big ingredient in that is feeling like I'm just on a treadmill. You know, I'm just cranking through the work every day, but what I do doesn't really matter, and I'm not really having the ability to make a difference. And so in order to restore morale, I think we need to restore human connection. Something that you do that I admire, because it's after my own heart, is that I never thought that medicine would be the be-all and end-all for my interest in, in life. And so you have found a number of other interests outside of medicine. Speak to our listeners, especially those considering careers in medicine that might think it's all-encompassing. How do you develop your a career for you that fits varied interests and not only necessarily those related to patients. Yeah, that's a good point. And I've had some people come up to me and say, you know, why don't you focus more? Why don't you just be a doctor? You're a physician. You should think about medicine. Why are you talking about philosophy and ethics and humanities and the liberal arts? And I think that some people see other types of learning or other ways of knowing as a threat. You know, my brain is an iceberg and there's only so many <laughs> penguins I can fit on this iceberg. And if I add one more penguin, somebody's going to flip off. <laughs> so that's the scarcity model of, of human learning. And I prefer the abundance model where it says that the more we can learn and engage the, the, the fullness of human existence, the more that's going to contribute to everything we do. So I've always thought that the humanities, the liberal arts, and be that, you know, literature or art or poetry or, you know, even essays about the literal work we're doing, I think that really can contribute because we need time to pause from the the noise. One of my favorite um, authors recently that I've been reading is Cardinal Sara from Africa. Oh, yes. He's written about the dictatorship of noise and the power of silence, how we need moments of silence to calm ourselves and recollect. And there's so much noise 
you just can get drowned in it. And I think we need things to, to kind of break our distraction from what's really important and to refocus us on uh, the things that are truly eternal. So um, I think that, you know, one of the things that I'm committed to doing, and we do it with the medical students who come over, you mentioned Brendan Radican, and there, there are a lot of others who come, um, is we try to take a pause from anatomy or microbiology or pathology and stop and think about this short story of a surgeon who went out and spent the second half of his career in Africa and encountered a bunch of people who were living very different lives from how he'd lived and what that taught him about the human condition. Or we read the story of a, you know, a neurologist who found out shortly after he gotten into practice that he had a terminal brain cancer and the process of, you know, kind of understanding his own mortality as he was trying to repair these serious illnesses and others. Those kinds of uh, moments to reflect, I think, make us better physicians and I think our patients benefit. Brandon. This is tremendous. We're going to get to more of it in the second half of the interview. But right now, we need to take a break here on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. We'll be right back shortly. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not. And their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And we are back with Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio with Dr. Brandon Brown. And we're talking today about radiology. So, Brandon, one of the things that we always like to talk about, uh, and you're a member of the Catholic Medical Association, why does it matter having a Catholic radiologist, and, and how does your faith influence the way you practice radiology? That's a great question. And, you know, it's something that I frequently ask myself uh, because I don't want to take my faith for granted, and I don't want to compartmentalize my life. You know, uh, it, you know, 100 plus years ago, Pope Leo XIII warned us about Americanism, which was the idea that we have our religious part of our life, that's mostly for Sundays, and then we have our family life, that's mostly for after hours, and we have our work life. And uh, he really wanted us to integrate all these parts of our life, and I'm a, I'm a deep believer in that. And I would say that the most important thing that my Catholic faith has done for me is it's constantly reminding me of the relational aspect of what I'm supposed to be doing and how I can really help a patient. So what I mean by the relational aspect is the fact that at, at, at the core of our faith, at the core of what it means to be a Christian, to be a Catholic, is not really a list of rules or a set of dogmas, but it's a relationship with a person, with the person of Jesus Christ. And I have to remind myself of that every day when I see a patient. This isn't just an x-ray. This isn't just another diagnosis. This isn't just you know, one more line item on the computer monitor, but this is a person who's depending upon me, who needs me, and who I need. You know, we're all connected. The poet uh, John Donne, as long ago as, you know, the 17th century said that um, every man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind. And so I think we need to think more that way. When someone is ill or disabled or even dying, that's something that doesn't just affect them, it affects us. And so as a Catholic, I'm constantly reminded of human vulnerability, human interconnectedness, and uh, human dignity. So I think that the temptation in medicine is the more patients we see, the more technology we have, the more it becomes a business or a practice that's technical. And radiology is especially guilty of this. We have so much technology, it could become all technology for us. But really, uh, that's just sort of the, the cloud around the nucleus of what we do. And that's always a relationship with a person, a doctor-patient relationship. And Brandon, this naturally flows into a related question, and that is, what are the biggest ethical challenges that confront a radiologist today? Well, you know, I think that there's a temptation to 
be very reductive about what we're doing. So to start to think in cold calculating terms, you can make uh, cost benefit analyses. You can look at an image of a patient and say, well, they have 60% loss of the function of their heart and they've got 70% loss of the function of their kidneys. And if I plug that into my algorithm, their estimated probability of mortality is 25%. It can all become very sterile and clinical and uh, it can get away from the fact that at the end of the day, it's a father, it's a grandfather, it's a mother, it's a sister. And, um, you know, what we've gotten very good at in this era of autonomy is we want to let patients make decisions for themselves. And I love that. I don't like the idea that patients are going to get manipulated or abused or taken advantage of, but it's a pendulum, right? And the pendulum could swing towards patients getting taken advantage of. That's happened in the past. But these days, I worry that it's swung the other way towards we don't want to be paternalistic. We don't want to tell you what to do. Here's your diagnosis of cancer. Here's three different options. Good luck picking your ideal one. You know, just let me know what you decide and I will order up the chemotherapy. And I think patients feel pretty abandoned. Um, if we are at our worst and we just kind of hold them at arm's length and say, oh, I couldn't possibly make that decision for you. You know, they're shouldering a heavy burden and they want us to walk with them. And that's scary because it means we might take on some risk. It means in sharing what we truly think and feel, we could end up being vulnerable ourselves. But I think our patients need it. And I think our, our oath, our commitment demands it. So you had an ethics committee or have at multiple in your specialty. What kind of topics do you discuss? Well, you know, lately, I've already touched on this a little bit earlier in the segment about um, the distress that's facing a lot of physicians. And uh, we've even, I'm very sad to report, had some physicians in our community commit suicide where, you know, these are people who you would have thought were engaged and energetic and teachers and helpers and committed physicians. And then all of a sudden, you know, we have this devastation and everybody shake, you know, shakes their head and said, no way to know. And I question whether that's true. Is it really true that there's no way to know? Or is it that we don't spend enough time asking one another um, how are you? You know, really, not just as a nicety, but really deep down, how are you doing? What's going on? Is there anything uh, that I can help with? You know, I, I know that one of your patients died last week. That must have been really hard. Do you want to talk about it? And to take that time and engage one another, we would never walk by a sidewalk with a person bleeding out and turn the other way. All of us would rush in and immediately intervene. But I think often we walk down the hall of the hospital and we see a colleague who's in distress and we don't want to be rude. We don't want to pry. We don't want to make an awkward moment. But I think we need to re-engage. So part of ethics, I think, is caring for one another. Um, another part of it, the part that we see in textbooks and on the news, is making sure that we're not taking advantage of the most vulnerable in society, whether that's the unborn or whether that's technology manipulating even the core being of what, of what it means to be a human person made in the image and likeness of God. Um, or, you know, I, I would say that um, another part of ethics that's important is how we can care for the least among us. Because in America, we've got great medicine, we've got great cutting edge therapies, but it does tend to asymmetrically benefit those with means, those with money, those who can afford it. And if we're not careful, those who are the most vulnerable can get left behind. So part of the ethics that I'm focused on is how can we truly take seriously the words of Christ when he says, you know, whatever you do for the least, who are the least among us? Who is my neighbor? Brandon, what, what are some of the most fulfilling aspects of your work in radiology or some of the greatest joys that you experience? <laughs> I would say um, making the difference in the life of a child is so rewarding because they immediately show you either you know, they're very unvarnished. So either you've relieved their distress and it's evident on their face, or you have calmed them down. You've relieved their anxiety and their distress, or maybe it's the parents who are just holding their breath with fear and worry and guilt and sitting down and explaining to them how what has happened is not their fault 
and that yes, they are a good and loving parent and we're going to be there to support them in their task. I love that so much. And one of the ways when it really becomes clear to me is with couples who are facing a very complicated pregnancy. And maybe they've had a diagnosis where they know something is wrong uh, with the pregnancy and they know that their baby is going to be born without all of its faculties and its organic function intact. And they're just terrified and they're anxious and maybe they're blaming themselves. They're imagining, oh, if I hadn't eaten that meal or gone on that jog or taken that vacation, you know, we all have a tendency to put too much um, pressure on ourselves when the reality is we're just not that powerful. There's a lot outside (laughs) our control, you know? And so sitting down with patients and holding their hand, metaphorically speaking, and helping them to get through a tough time. I can't always fix it. If they have a pregnancy with a complication, I can't wave a magic wand and and make that go away, but I can support them and advise them and go on the journey with them. And I love that as much as anything. Brandon, what are some of the misconceptions that you have run into regarding radiology and radiologists? (laughs) Well, you know, I wonder if it's, it's kind of a thing that we all do to one another, and that is we all know how our specialty or our daily work is underappreciated. And there's a temptation <laughs> to walk into the hospital with a little bit of a chip on our shoulder and think, nobody really values the work that I'm doing. People take me for granted, or they blow me off, or they think that they're doing the real work and I'm just a, you know, a helper. And so there's a, there's a tendency for every specialty to look at the other specialties and say, gosh, they're doing this thing that's really upsetting, but I'm doing the real in the trenches hard work. And I think, you know, there's, there's the same thing that could be said of radiology. I could think, well, everybody wants to say the radiologists aren't really taking care of patients. They're just looking at pictures or everybody says that the radiologist is too detached because they're looking at technology and they're not encountering human beings in the flesh. But I think at our best, when we're working together as a team, we're all contributing to something that no one of us can do alone. And as soon as we realize that we all are really interdependent on each other, I think the patient benefits. So the biggest misconception is that radiology or any other specialty isn't doing real medicine. That real medicine is, you know, you know, like the doctors on TV shows from the 50s where they walked around going door to door with their black bag. And in some ways, that's, that's kind of a part of the past. Um, but I think that whether it's radiology or surgical specialties or primary care, each of us needs to realize that we depend upon each other and we can only do our best work for our patients uh, when we see ourselves as um, interdependent and not independent. Brandon, can, can you share with us, it, it sounds like you've got a wealth of experience caring, especially for these children. Can you share with us a few of the stories of lives that you changed? Well, you know, often it's the surgeon or the internist or the, you know, family doctor who knows the patient has that relationship, makes that critical decision or discovery that that makes the difference. So it's not often that the radiologist is identified as the person who made a difference, uh, even though we're all contributing. But there have been some times when I've been able to see things um, and reveal something that was unknown, that was dangerous, maybe even life-threatening. And if you think about it, an adult can speak, they can be examined, they can get a physician to put a stethoscope on them. There's a lot of information. X-rays are helpful, but they're just a piece of the puzzle. The younger you get, the less the patient can tell you what's wrong, the less you can really talk to them about what's going on. And the example that's the most extreme is the fetus. In the womb, we have no information about those patients. We don't have a physical exam or a past medical history. We can't talk to them. So imaging becomes just about the only thing we have. And there have been times when uh, imaging has revealed kind of like a ticking time bomb, for lack of a better word, inside um, a patient. There's a woman who I treated a couple of years ago who had a placenta that had invaded so deeply into her womb that it had grown all the way through and into some of the surrounding organs. Wow. She didn't do anything about this. And she was 
going along with her pregnancy. And actually, we had found a problem within her baby who had been yet to be born. And we were all focused on how to take care of that baby. And little did we know that when she tried to deliver that baby, she was going to start hemorrhaging. And there have been patients who've died because we can't control the bleeding. The placenta just doesn't want to come. But with our imaging, we were able to identify this. It was such a shock. Some people didn't want to believe it. They said, are you sure? This doesn't make any sense. What are the odds that lightning's going to strike twice in one patient? But because of the imaging, more surgeons went in, more blood was available. They ended up having to remove her entire uterus, which was on one hand unfortunate, but it saved her life. And one of the most gratifying things that ever happened was she got up in front of an audience of people about a year later at a ceremony honoring disabled children in our community. And she said, I'm just so grateful that the doctors in our community, and I specifically want to say <laughs> the radiologist took the time to look at both patients involved. They took my mm. child seriously as a patient and they took me seriously as a patient. And as a result, you know, I'm alive today and that I'll never forget that moment. That is a beautiful story, Brandon. I'm going to remember that one. In our last three minutes here, Brandon, uh, one of my last questions for you is why do you think the world needs more faithful Catholic radiologists, especially think about talking to students who are out there? Well, you know, increasingly, and I bet the two of you would agree with me, medicine relies more and more on imaging studies to help us know what to do next. You know, in the old days, we would really trust our physical exam, our stethoscope, our otoscope, but increasingly, uh, we also want to do the imaging. We want to see what's behind the curtain. And that also means in matters of life and death. So when a person's at the end of their life and we're concerned they don't have functioning brain and we're wondering, is there even any blood flow to their brain? Uh, we do studies to determine if a patient's dead or at the beginning of life, uh, you know, the laws of our country allow elective termination of pregnancies, what we call abortions, based on the age of the patient. And so many times it's the radiologist performing that prenatal imaging study who's determining A, what's wrong with the patient, B, how old this pregnancy is, and whether or not the law is applying to this case. And so we need to take that job seriously. There's a lot of gravity to that. And sometimes, you know, I do an imaging study on a pregnant patient and say, we were worried about a condition. We thought we saw something on ultrasound, but then when we did this MRI, we discovered actually it's a totally normal brain. And we need people who take that responsibility very seriously. These are matters of life and death. And uh, we put a lot of emphasis on what we can see with imaging. And so uh, we need to really take that role as gravely and seriously as, as it ought to be taken. Brandon, in the last minute, what final comments do you have for our listeners about radiology? Well, I would encourage everyone to think about the way in which technology affects our lives. On one hand, it seems like it's making things better and better. We're living longer. We can get surgeries and transplants, and we can maybe even live forever. Uh, but on the other hand, technology can be a distraction from those core things that make us human. And so I feel like radiology has given me a unique opportunity to kind of straddle this very unusual situation where on one hand, we're talking about machines and artificial intelligence taking over our lives. And on the other hand, we're looking at men and women and children living and breathing and dying and suffering. And we need the technology to assist us but we need to always be vigilant that we let the technology serve the human and that we don't become slaves to the technology. So I guess I would ask everyone to try to be mindful of that and especially those who are going into medicine to remember technology uh, can be our assistant, but if we're not careful, it, it could threaten to become our master. Brandon Brown, Renaissance radiologist. Thank you so much for enlightening and encouraging our listeners here on Dr. Doctor. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you both so very much. And we are back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the radiology medical trivia question. Uh, of course it is. So, 1895, x-rays discovered. 1900, Thomas Edison's assistant starts working with them. And by 1904, he's dead because he has progressively had his fingers, hands, forearms and arms amputated and then something goes into his chest what was 
the disease he died of? And it's probably easy for you to guess, right, Andrew? You know, I thought it was a beautiful question for you to choose, Tom. I thought you were going to ask how many millisieverts did he have? <laughs> Nobody knows that. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, the answer is uh, squamous cell cancer of the skin and very fast, aggressive ones. And this is the reason why patients, or one reason why patients can't have radiation twice to the same area, uh, at least two courses. Because once you have one full course of radiation, if you have it again to the same area, you can destroy the skin uh, or other areas, other organs, other parts of the body, uh, or cause cancer. And that's why they don't do radiation often until someone's usually 50 years old or older, at least as a form of treatment. We're not talking about x-rays and CT scans. Right. And that's why, especially when they're targeting the internal organs, they're coming at it from all different angles because they want to try and protect the skin. Right. So they minimize each part of it until you get to right to what was on the inside. Now, when uh, when Daly died, Clarence Daly, he was the first American to die from the side effects of experimenting with radiation. And following this, uh, Thomas Edison actually abandoned his research on x-rays. And he said in 1903, the year before Daly died, he said, don't talk to me about x-rays. I'm afraid of them. And that was an appropriate fear. Yeah, I think so. More dangerous than than they were aware of. Uh, Brandon Brown. Wow, what a lot of energy there. I think it might encourage more people than normal to consider radiology. And I think that's a good thing. Well, and I think he's a great example of, of the diversity in medicine. We're hoping that this kind of series of the different specialties not only introduces the specialties, but also gives an idea of the breadth of what you can undertake as a physician. So for people who are interested in medicine as a career, we would encourage them. Right, because you know God has a plan that fits your own skills and interests. I mean, Brandon Brown is an awesome example of that. And just like he's as joyful doing what he does, you can be too if you're considering medicine to find something that fits you like a glove so that you don't have penguins sliding off your iceberg. <laughs> Boy, that was a new one. Thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com doctor.